Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. What a wonderful story. The story of David and Goliath. Very few children who have ever been exposed in any way, shape, or form to a Sunday school can say when they become adults, I never heard the story of David and Goliath. Such a popular story to teach small children especially, because it shows them the power of God's grace to overcome even the biggest giants in their lives. But God was in the preparation stages of killing that giant. So he had to ripen the giant for judgment, while at the same time he was preparing David for the position of king. We talked about the preparation of a giant killer. And I used the basketball illustration, which I think a lot of the men here might identify with. The illustration of going into the paint, into the area under the basket where the giants dwell. Uh, little guys going in there are always amazing to me. Watching the little guys, the, the point guards and the shooting guards actually penetrating into the paint with no fear uh, and uh, willing to take on the giants head on. It's an amazing athletic feat to watch as you enter the paint. And I talked about the fact that as Christians, we have to enter the paint if we're going to kill the giants. Not once in this passage, in fact, as we read it even more today, not once in this passage did David expect to lose. He did not enter the paint with fear. He entered the paint in faith. He didn't expect to lose. He didn't expect to get hurt. He said the glory of God is at stake here, and this giant is going to fall. God was all along preparing for the slaying of a giant. Now, I gave you several points, and several of you emailed me and said, could you outline those points again? And I'm going to do it very quickly. Here they are. The preparation of a giant killer. Point number one, a man willing to enter the paint with the giants knows that humility, humility is the conduit of divine grace. And I used verses 12 through 16 to illustrate that point. Secondly, a man willing to enter the paint with the giants believes that the heart of a servant, the heart of a servant is the key to greatness. And I used verses 17 through 22 to prove that point. Thirdly, a man willing to enter the paint with the giant believes that the wisdom of man is the foolishness of God. Man's wisdom is God's foolishness. Verses 23 through 27. Fourthly, a man willing to enter the paint with a giant believes he must not be dissuaded by the armchair critics. That really seemed to hit home with quite a few of you, especially if the emails are any indication. Uh, there are always the armchair critics, verses 28 through 31, always the armchair critics who are standing there telling you why it can't be done, that the giant's too big, or your pride is too great, 
or your spiritual condition is too weak. The man of, of God or the woman of God must always be willing to be misinterpreted. They must always be willing to stand alone. Fifthly, a man willing to enter the paint with a giant believes that the skills and the gifts that are necessary to kill that giant are honed in the mundane and lonely places of day-to-day -day life. Nothing goes by the board. Nothing is done by chance, fate, or mistake. God is using even the mundane and the situational things, the circumstantial things in your life. He is using those things to prepare you for those moments when all hell breaks loose, so to speak, and you are faced with the giant. It's the day-to-day, -day, it's the mundane, it's the little things every day where your faith is being honed in and when your skills are being honed for the purpose of preparing you for those days when you're going to have to face incredible giants. Well, that brings us to verse 38. Uh, by the way, point number five is verses 32 through 37. As we come to the actual battle, I think we have to talk about the rules of engagement. You don't just face an enemy arbitrarily. You don't just face a giant arbitrarily. There needs to be some rules in place, rules of engagement. That's what I've entitled this message, the rules of engagement. Let's take a look at the first rule. A man willing to enter the paint with a giant believes he must arm himself with five smooth stones. Now look at what verse 38 to 40 says. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistines. What Saul did is he went into his armory and he picked out some armor suitable for David. Now, we tend to illustrate this in Sunday school wrongly by showing David appearing in Saul's uh, armor, that Saul took his own armor off. Well, Saul was much larger than David, he was a tall man, and certainly his armor would not have fit David. But he took some armor out of his own select uh, 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 closet, and he put it on David, because when you're going to face a giant, Saul reasoned, you need to have the proper armor on. So he gave him a helmet, and he gave him, he gave him a, a shield, and he gave him the breastplate and all that other stuff. But David was not a warrior. David was a shepherd. He wasn't used to walking around in armor like his older brothers were. David was a mere shepherd boy. So he said, I can't wear this equipment. And so he goes and he chooses out of the stream, the Bible says, five small, smooth stones. Now, I have searched high and low for an explanation as to why David chose five stones. Now, there are a few theories out there. Some scholars like to look at it and say, well, it's just an incidental number. It's just like any other number in Scripture. It's incidental. The Bible is just giving us the details, 
And it's just incidental. It's just like saying the same thing as he picked up a pile of stones and stuck, him in, stuck them in his bag. But the Bible doesn't say that. And the Bible doesn't say anything with arbitrary kinds of, uh, 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 with, with an arbitrary kind of mindset. The Bible always is specific, and it's specific for a reason. It doesn't say he picked up four stones. It doesn't say he picked up six stones. It doesn't say he picked up a bunch of stones. It doesn't even say he picked up stones. It says he picked up five, note five, smooth stones. Not ragged stones, smooth stones, clean stones, select stones. Now, I read every commentary on my bookshelf. I even went into Pastor Dave Hutchinson's bookshelf and picked out some of his commentaries. I called a few of my scholar friends, a few of my brothers in the Lord, and I said, I want you to answer this question for me. Why five stones? And no one had an explanation. I couldn't come up with one sensible, reasonable explanation. One thing I'm sure of is it's not arbitrary. God is trying to send us a very specific message by telling us that David picked up five select smooth stones. So certainly it's not incidental. Well, some have reasoned it's a symbolic number. And there is something to be said about this because the number five in Scripture seems to be used in the context of the doctrine of grace. So it may be that what God's trying to say to us here is that the five smooth stones represent an act of grace on God's part, that God was going to do something that reflected his grace. Certainly a man six feet tall, in sheer human ability and sheer human strength, could not face a giant that tall and that well-armored and expect to win. Grace had to be evident, and certainly there is something to be said when you look at the word or the number five in Scripture, it seems to be wrapped up in the context of grace. And maybe there is something to that. It is also possible that David took five stones, since the Bible tells us there were five lords of the Philistines, and that he expected not just to kill Goliath, but to kill the other four lords of the Philistines as well that he had one, arm, one, one stone for each of the five lords of the Philistines. Others indicate that Scripture tells us that Goliath had four brothers, that the four brothers of Goliath were also the target of David, that he picked out five stones for that reason. Now, all of these, except for the first one, I think are plausible explanations, but I don't think any of them go deep enough. I want to suggest to you something else. What I did is I took the number five in Scripture to see where it was used. Uh, it took me hours to do this. And uh, when I came up with the survey, so to speak, of scriptural data, here's what I concluded. The number five, first of all, is used in Scripture to speak of sacrifice. Sacrifice. The number of animals that are to be sacrificed in several different kinds of offerings that God mandated for Israel was five. They had to be five select animals. They had to be pure animals, maybe thus giving us an indication as to why the stones were smooth. But the, the, number, the number five and the concept of sacrifice seem to be Siamese twins in Scripture. 
Well, I looked at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. Hold your place there in uh, verse 38 uh, of 1 Samuel 17 and go with me to Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul seems to have caught the idea of his life being a sacrifice. Uh, he seems to have caught the idea that when we and as we engage the enemies in our life and as we preach and teach the gospel, we can expect that there's a price tag on it. That it is costly to disseminate the gospel. It is costly to engage the enemy. It is costly to be a Christian. There's sacrifice involved. Philippians 2 verse 17. But he says there, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Paul equates the engagement of his ministry to preach and teach the gospel as a sacrifice. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. There's sacrifice involved in being a Christian. He would say the same thing over in uh, first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4 in verse 6. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. He talks about his death, and he looks for, and he calls his death his departure. You know what a departure is? You're going from one place to another. He doesn't say, I'm preparing for my death, where that's the end of it, and that's all of my life has, that's the summary of my life. He says, I'm departing. I'm taking off. Flight 747, I'm taking off. This is my life. I'm moving to another dimension. I'm moving to an eternal dimension. But then he looks back on his life and he says, my life was a drink offering. My life was a sacrifice. Listen to me, friends, to engage the enemy, to engage the enemy, we must do so as an act of worship, as an act of sacrifice. Sacrifice involves cutting. It involves clipping. It involves shearing. It involves pain. Sacrifice says to the whole world, as I live out my life, as I live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of my day-to-day -day life, as I live my life before you, I am being poured out as a drink offering, as a sacrifice. And I am saying to you and to the rest of the world for all to hear, it's not about me. Sacrifice says it's not about me. You hear that almost every week here, don't you? You want to know why I say it every week? Because you forget that on Monday. Amen? It is about you when Monday rolls around. It is about you when Tuesday rolls around. But if you're going to engage the enemy, if you're going to go into the paint, you've got to be willing to pay the price. Listen, friends, the focal point of true worship, and I contrast that with faulty or false worship, because many of us worshiped in a faulty way. You know it, and I know it. Many of us were not honed in on what the Holy Spirit was trying to say to us through every word of the Psalms through the prayers that were prayed, through the testimonies that we heard, even now through the preaching, we're not honed in. And so I contrast false worship from true worship, but the focal point of true worship 
is praise, listen, and confidence that God hears. I'm not just praising up into the sky. I'm not just shouting words out that no one's going to hear. True worship says I have the confidence that God not only hears, but that in response to what I am doing and worshiping him and offering myself as a drink offering to him, he's not only hearing, but he's empowering and he's promising to go before me in the engagement of that enemy. That's what worship is. The Bible refers to the offering of ourselves to God as a sacrifice in the context of worship. Read Romans chapter 12. In the context of worship, we are to sacrifice. We are to say to God, here is my life. I'm picking those five smooth stones because I know that when I engage this enemy, it's a sacrifice. There's a price to be paid. And I'm willing to pay that price because I know you not only hear me, but you're going to empower me and you've made certain promises to go before me no matter how tall the giant is. But listen, just as that is true, contrary-wise, if we, if, we, if we attempt to engage the enemy, listen, apart from sacrifice, apart from true worship, we risk not only defeat, but spiritual castration. When we try to go up against the enemy, and it's not done in the spirit of sacrifice, and worship. I am doing this for your glory, God. I am being poured out and I'm willing to pay the price as I engage this enemy. I'm willing to do the right thing, knowing the right thing is going to cost me enormously. I'm willing to do that. And so I do that as I worship you, as I give myself to you. If we do that, God promises to hear, to empower, and to go before us. But if we don't do that, Satan or whatever other enemy you face will chew you up, spiritually castrate you, and spit you out. So the number five in Scripture speaks of sacrifice. Five different kinds of sacrifices, and maybe even more, are mentioned in the context of the number five. Well, secondly, the number five is used to speak of the miraculous. It was five loaves Jesus used to work the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. There's a miracle involved here. To engage the enemy, we must do so by asking, Lord, this is what, listen, this is what I can do within the context of my human abilities that you have given me. This is what I can do. Parenthetically, I think that's how we have to learn how to give whether it's money or time or whatever. Lord, this is what I can do without you. Now, I know, ultimately, we can do nothing apart from Christ. But in the context of human abilities, Lord, this is what I can do. And I can do this, really, without you, given the gift mix that you've given me. I can do this apart from you, so to speak. And I'm conditioning that, but I think you catch the gist. But now, Lord, teach me how to engage this enemy in such a unique way that when everything, when all is said and done, it will become very clear and very evident to everyone around me so that the world might see you have worked a miracle here. 
so that I do not boast in my own human ability. Lord, this is what I can do. And by the way, this is, this is what releasing control is all about. This is what submission is all about. It's saying, Lord, this is what I can do. But now beyond that, I know I can't do it. Beyond that, I know it's going to take a miracle. I know you're going to have to take five loaves of bread and a few fish, and you're going to have to work a miracle here. And remember when the disciples came and, and they said, Jesus, the crowd's hungry, and he said, well, what do you got out there? And he said, well, we've only got this one little boy. He's got five loaves of bread. But what was their response? What was the disciples' response? Well, what's that among so many? This is what I have to offer, five loaves of bread. This is what I can do. Maybe I can feed the front row. But beyond that, Lord, how can we feed this massive crowd? Give me the five loaves. Let me show you what I can do with what you have in the power of the miraculous that only I can supply. Five stones, one of which killed a giant. Now, we can look at all the technical reasons why that happened, but I got to tell you something, no matter how you cut it, that stone that hit Goliath was a guided missile. No matter how you cut it, it was a guided missile. It was a rocket to the brain, shot by God himself. David never expected to lose. The number five is always used to speak of the miraculous. You know, God's given you certain gifts, talents, and abilities, hasn't he? Every one of you have creative gifts he's given just, as, just because you're part of the human race. The design of the human being, the design of the personality of the human being, uh, whether you're saved or lost, is a beauty to observe. God has uniquely placed a thumbprint on every one of us. And so there are inherent gifts, talents, skills, and abilities God has given to you. And certainly you are called upon to engage the world in using those gifts, skills, talents, and abilities. But have you ever considered, God, how can you use what you've equipped me to do in a miraculous way? So that when people see what's being accomplished in and through me, it causes them to fall on their knees and say, my, my. My, my. Not what a wonderful person you are, but my, my, what a wonderful God you serve. What a mighty God you serve. What an awesome God you serve. Oh, but no, see, tomorrow morning it's all about us. We want people to look at us and say, my, my, what a wonderful person you are. We need the accolades of men. You see our self-images in the toilet, we say. And we need something to take us out of that. We need something to, to cause us to feel good about ourselves. What will make you feel good about yourselves is to know that you are the conduit of God's power in a fallen and darkened world. What will make you feel good about yourself is to know that God is using you in miraculous ways to accomplish incredible things for his glory. That's what will make you feel good about yourself. Miraculous. Sacrifice. Thirdly, the number five in Scripture speaks of judgment. Judgment. It is five months the plague of the locusts lasts in the book of Revelation. Now, I know the number five is the lifespan of a locust, but clearly what God is saying to us there is that judgment and the number five come together. You see, to engage the enemy, listen, to engage the enemy, we must plan on winning. We must plan on winning, and by winning we are serving as the conduit of divine justice. 
that God is preparing the giant for judgment and he is using you as the conduit to that judgment to slay that giant. So you can't approach that with the attitude of, I'm going to lose. You have to approach that with the attitude of winning. So it is conceivable when you put these numbers together that the number five symbolizes sacrifice, judgment, and the miraculous power of God, all of which were evident in the slaying of Goliath. But regardless of your theory, one thing is certain. David, and hopefully you tomorrow morning, David was standing alone in the power of God to the glory of God and in the name of his God, and a great miracle was performed. A great sacrifice was offered to the God of Israel, and a great judgment was leveled against God's enemies. So if you're going to enter the paint, you got to take the miraculous, judgmental power of God to work the miraculous as an act of worship and sacrifice to engage the enemy. Otherwise, don't bother going into the paint because you'll get chewed up and you'll get spit out. Rules of engagement. You got to have the five stones. Secondly, a man willing to enter the paint with a giant believes he must arm himself with this truth. God is a sovereign God and my enemy or Satan is a mere lackey. Look with me at verses 41 to 47. Meanwhile, I like the meanwhile. David's loading up. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, his little brag boy in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy. Ruddy or red-headed, red-complexioned, and handsome. And he despised him. Now, maybe he despised him because he was a Jew. Maybe he despised him because he, unlike Goliath, was handsome. For whatever reason, he despised him. Verse 43, he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Again, nothing in Scripture is by chance, fate, or mistake. It's clear here the battle is not only between David and Goliath, between Israel and the Philistines. The, 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 the real battle is between God, the God of the universe, Yahweh, Jehovah God, and the pit of hell. The battle here is between God and Satan. Between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. Verse 44, come here, he said. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. The Hebrew version, I'll chew you up and spit you out. Spiritual enemies, friends, pride themselves in loud talk and false accusations. Spiritual enemies are usually loud. They're boisterous. They brag. Their, their stench is one of pride. They say such things as, 
Where is your God now? Have you heard that recently? Where is your God? Or of what value are you? You're worthless. You've failed so many times before. You're a quitter. You're a loser. You're a failure. Have you heard your enemy taunt you that way? And maybe even will posture you in your own mind over against other Christians that you've emulated or that, that you've, you've desired to be like who have great faith and you say, I could never be like them. I could never be like that person. I don't have enough faith. Or, or the price tag is just too high. The consequences are too great. I want you to notice something as I read this passage. David's response. I love his response. Verse 45. David said to the Philistine, Ooh, I'm scared. <laughs> you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down, and here's how you're going to die. I'm going to kill you and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistines and their army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And the whole earth will know, my, my, what a great person David is. Shake your heads, no, that's not what that says. The whole world will know what a wonderful strategy for winning this war we had. What a great general we have. What wonderful people the Jews are. What a great church we've got. Oh no, you don't see any of that. I want the whole world to know when I cut off your head and we, we gather the carcasses of your, of your fallen friends and your comrades, I want the whole world to know of the God in Israel. You see, it's not about David. It's not about Israel. It's about the glory of God. And those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is David's. And I'm just a real capable marksman with my little slingshot here. You don't know what we little shepherd boys can do with slingshots. I've had a few of you familiar with Middle Eastern custom tell me that... Uh, uh, little children over there are raised to sling those slingshots, and that's true. All that's true. These guys were marksmen, but that's not what David says. He says, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. I love that response. You know what David, in essence, is saying? This is not a private war between you and me, Goliath. Yeah, this is personal, but you made it public. And I take, David said, the glory of God and the name of God and the reputation of God, I take it personally. You've made this personal. Now I'm making it public. You know, your enemy does talk loud, doesn't he? He can be very brash and very intimidating. 
And yeah, it can get scary, especially when you're being called upon to do something that you consider to be impossible. But God majors in the impossible. Thirdly, a man willing to enter the paint with a giant believes he must play to win, and he must take the offensive. I want you to look at verses 48 to 50. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. You notice what David did? He went to where the battle line was. He engaged Goliath where Goliath was. He stormed the gates of hell. My good friend, Dr. Warsaw, always has a theory about these things from a medical perspective, and I think this maybe has some credibility to it, um, and so I'll take his word for it. He says, you know, these people who are giants, uh, these 12-foot, 10-foot, 12-foot people, they have a pituitary gland problem in their brains, which hinders them from having any peripheral vision. They don't have, they can't, they can only see straight, they can't see out of the sides. And it could be that when it says that David uh, stormed in front of him in the battle line, that David was kind of circling the enemy, looking for the strategy to invade and to hit the enemy at his weak point. And so when, when David came and stormed in front of him and flung the stone, my theory is he couldn't see him on the side. But when he came out in front of him, he took him by surprise. He played to win. And he sunk the stone into the forehead. Maybe the temple, I don't know which it is, but he sunk the stone deep inside and the giant fell. Do you know the weaknesses of your enemy? Do you know the weaknesses? The most fundamental weakness of Satan, the most fundamental weakness of the enemies of Christ can be, can be summarized in one statement. Fundamentally, they are cowards. They are cowards. Loud, boisterous, proud, arrogant cowards. Yellow from the word go. Terrified, not of you, but of the God you serve and the Lord Jesus Christ. Terrified of his name, terrified by his power. So when you send him out in front of you, when you have the Lord Jesus Christ storming the gates of hell, all you have to do is what the Jews did, clean up the booty, storming the gates of hell. And then finally, a man willing to enter the paint, rules of engagement with the giant, must listen Finish the task and not quit halfway through. Finish the job. I think, by the way, it's the biggest mistake we made in the Gulf War. We never finished the job. Finish the job. Look at verse 51. David ran. Imagine what a thud that made. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, which was bigger than David, and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they did what all of Satan's lackeys do. They turned and ran. 
And the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharahim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David wasn't through yet. David, verse 54, took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapons into his own tent. You need to underline that. That's going to reappear later. It's actually going to become a point of contention. Stay with me in the David series. We'll figure out why. Verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. <laughs> what a picture. <laughs> Saul standing there looking at this blood dripping down from Goliath's head, probably had big long hair, and David's holding his head by, you know, the uh, scruff here. And what's Saul want to know? What's your dad's name? What's your dad's name, boy? I want to know what your dad's name is. Now, the reason he was asking that, by the way, is very simple. As the king, he had the right to approach Jesse at that point and say, I want your son to be with me from now on. I want him to be in the palace. And then he tells him, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. I could imagine David was still breathing heavy. You want to talk about an adrenaline rush. He cuts off his head. He carries the head to Saul takes it to Jerusalem, puts the, the sword and the weapons of Goliath aside, but he finished the job. Let me tell you something. So many of us quit when it gets tough. When we know we're doing the right thing, we quit. We've got the enemy on the run. The sad part is, we don't realize it, right around the corner is the victory, and all we've got to do is go a little bit further. It's right there, it's standing out there in front of us, all we've got to do is stay the course, but we look at it and we say, it's just too tough. It's just too tough out here all by myself. It's too lonely. You need to hold his head in your hands. You need to cut off the enemy's head. You need to get the same adrenaline rush that David did. You can't quit. You can't give up. You've got to finish the job. You've got to finish the task. God has carved out a way. He's already gone before you. He's already claimed the victory. He's already defeated the enemy. He's already wiped it clean. You're already the victor. You just need to take a few more steps and see it through. You need to finish the task. But we quit. We give up. It's too hard. Too difficult. Too scary. Too painful. And you know what happens? We rob ourselves of incredible victories. And you know what God does? He turns around and he gives that very same victory to someone else 
who receives all the blessings and you just sit there and suck your thumb. You just sit there and suck your thumb. Feeling sorry for yourself. Then you begin to reason, maybe those people were right. Maybe my God is too small. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe the challenge is too big. When just a few steps later, just around the corner, are the blessings. Let me illustrate it as I close this way. This is what I believe Satan does when we storm the gates of hell. We do so in faith. Satan takes a couple of steps back. He wants to see who's standing out in front of us. If there's nobody standing out in front of us, he steps forward to engage us. But if he sees the Lord Jesus Christ standing out in front of us, he begins to back off. Slowly but surely, he's backing up. He wants to see how long he's going to stand there. The moment you rush out in front of your God, the moment you say to your God, step aside, this is all about me, is the moment Satan lunges in for the attack. I think when we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan backs off to see if we mean business. And when he sees we mean business, and he sees the God we serve advancing against us, he is put to flight. And we go and we kill, and we destroy, and we take the booty, we destroy the enemy, we storm the gates of hell, and we become the victors by finishing the task. But Satan's MO is this. He'll just back off to see whether or not you're going to finish the job. And the moment he sees signs of you quitting, the moment he sees that he can launch a counterattack because you have indeed made the, made the battle about you and not the glory of God, is the moment he spiritually castrates. So what do you think? How big is your giant? More importantly, how big is your God? This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.